Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each Monday morning we invite our listeners into our Liquid Market Team's Financial Market Update Meeting to get a briefing on the latest themes impacting the equity, fixed income, commodity, currency, and volatility markets. Morning, everyone. Stuart, we might start with you uh, and starting with uh, a wrap-up with regards to asset market performances and themes uh, for the week past and the week ahead. And I know you want to sort of get into the US-China tensions as well. So can we hand over to you, please? Sure. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, last week, very strong appetite for risk to kick off the week with US equities in particular gapping higher and extending the rally on really fairly thin reports of a successful vaccine trial but also extension of the move with the French-German proposal for a 500 million euro recovery, sorry, billion euro recovery fund and the EU moving towards joint bond issuance. Uh, Really two big themes underlying risk assets uh, and asset prices in general throughout the week. One is that of um, potential vaccines and there's a number of companies in particular that are in focus, uh, Moderna, Sorrento, AstraZeneca are just three of the names mentioned. But the other theme that was really uh, working against the vaccine story was uh, the deterioration in the geopolitical environment. Uh, And really equities rallied and risk assets rallied in spite of that broader deterioration in geopolitics. And perhaps that's also an indication really of positioning and clearly the market still looks to be more responsive to good news than to bad news. Uh, And just touching on bonds very briefly here, it really looked to be the odd one out with US Treasuries selling off in line with Monday's strong risk appetite, but rallied back across the remainder of the week. And perhaps we're gonna get into that a little bit more later. Um, But just touching more so on that deteriorating geopolitical environment, really, There's a few streams here. The the primary one is around the US and China. uh, And that's really been escalated with moves of China looking to introduce national security laws into Hong Kong. Uh, The US Secretary of State Pompeo issued a statement saying that the new laws would impact the US assessment of one country, two systems, and the status of the territory. Really, the escalation from here would be sanctions that are introduced, and uh, and China have already said that there would be countermeasures if that's the case. So this is a really uh, important story for risk assets across this week to see how that develops. And that law is apparently um, meant to be introduced later on this week, potentially on Thursday. And we did see some protests in Hong Kong uh, yesterday as well. Uh, and really, it's not this tension uh, with China isn't isolated to the Hong Kong situation. There's a number of different escalations throughout the last couple of weeks. And the US last week, the White House uh, issued a 16-page report titled United States Strategic Approach to the People's Republic of China. And that's essentially abandoning hope that deepening engagement would spur a fundamental and political opening in China and really pitting them as a competitor and saying that the US will tolerate greater bilateral friction. And lastly, there's also that uh, escalating tensions between Australia and China. They didn't really go further last week, although there has been talk 
of measures against uh, potentially against iron ore imports and coal as well. So they're, they're the main themes that dominated last week and I expect that geopolitical environment to really shape uh, this coming week as well. Thanks, Stu. And yeah, Matthew Peters and uh, and myself uh, covered some of that uh, tension uh, with regards to iron ore and coal on our Friday podcast. Can I switch gears to the COVID? And um, there was lots of, uh, I suppose, news over the weekend with regards to Brazil's deteriorating situation. Can we get an update from you quickly, Stu, with regards to the domestic and global side there? Yep. Very quickly on the domestic side, the news remains very good with just a handful of cases and we're seeing more opening up of Australian states. Globally, it doesn't look so good. And you mentioned Brazil, but more broadly, um, South America is, uh, the number of infections there is escalating, particularly Brazil, Chile, and Peru. And according to the um, World Health Organization Daily Situation Report, we've seen the highest number of new infections through the entire crisis have occurred over the past four days. And that's more than 100,000 cases a day. So, Really, you're seeing this um, southern hemisphere starting to displace, displace the northern hemisphere in terms of um, cases, and it's still very worrying, particularly across emerging markets. Thanks, Stu. And just quickly, whilst you've got the mic, uh, can we get a quick update on the currency markets? You mentioned the risk sentiment from last week. Is that playing a big role with currencies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a strong week for the high beta currencies, and ironically, the emerging market companies currencies in particular, including Brazil and Mex and RAND. So that's in spite of the deteriorating situation with COVID. Uh, more focus this week is probably going to be on China with uh, levels approaching the lows for the renminbi from the height of the trade war from last year. And we're also looking to see if there's going to be an extension of the move in Hong Kong dollar forwards. Also just worth mentioning now that um, one of the statistics that have come out of this deteriorating Hong Kong geopolitical situation is that the MSCI Hong Kong stock index dropped 6.2% on Friday, and that's the worst daily performance since October 2008. Thanks, Stu. Uh, we might switch gears. Bev, can I bring you into the conversation? Um, I think late last week, um, the Australian government uh, identified a bit of a calculation error with regards to the JobKeeper program. Can you walk us through that, the impact on the local bonds, and if you get uh, a little bit of time at the end there, perhaps the domestic outlook as well? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Craig. Uh, yeah, look, it was a pretty interesting Friday afternoon. That news broke around 2 o'clock on Friday, but, um, you know, the interesting part of that announcement is, is that it, it was just a couple of hours after the AOFM uh, issued uh, their update for the, for the budget um, figures. Um, so it was very obvious that the AOFM at that stage had no idea what was just about to be announced two hours later because um, they had said that they were on track to issue 130 billion of bonds um, for the 2019-20 financial year um, and in order to achieve that given that they'd already issued 105 bill um, for the financial year so far um, they had you know five more weeks of which they would roughly um, 10 to 5 bill per week so that that news um, you know was fairly expected by markets at midday and then you know as you said it all sort of um, 
unwound with the 2pm announcement that the Treasury had discovered that the number of employees likely to be covered um, by its JobKeeper program was going to be only around three and a half million versus their initial estimate of around six and a half um, million. So, um, you know, how did that mistake happen? Well, it looks like, you know, a reasonable chunk um, they're, they're attributing to um, errors in the way that businesses completed the application form. Um, so they sort of saying that there's around a thousand businesses that look like they've um, in mistakenly submitted the amount that they wanted to receive. Um, so the upshot of all that means that the the JobKeeper program, which is obviously you know the the core and central piece of the budget package, which was meant to um, cost the government 130 bill, now looks like it's only be going to be costing 70 billion. So it's been really interesting, you know, listening to the interpretation um, by many sort of commentators to this news. It's sort of a lot of people just, you know, taking the angle, well, this means now that there's going to be, you know, 3% less um, budget deficit spent uh, in the economy than before. Um, but this isn't like the government had, you know, announced that it was going to build 100 schools and now it's only going to build 50 schools. Uh, you know, this was always a demand driven program. Um, so the lower cost of JobKeeper is just reflecting the fact that there is a lower take up of JobKeeper um, or lower need for JobKeeper than everyone um, or than the government had previously forecast. So, you know, and, and you know, it's quite I think quite consistent um, with some of the um, you know things we've been talking about in recent weeks that in, in terms of the trackers coming through for household incomes that the economic damage so far um, doesn't look like it's as bad as well firstly the RBA had forecast and, and secondly now that the government looks to a forecast. In terms of you know, the market reaction to this, certainly we've seen no economic forecasters change their economic forecasts on the back of this, um, because obviously, you know, the JobKeeper payments are lower because there was less of a gap to fill than we thought. So um, you know, whilst the labour market's still highly dependent on fiscal stimulus, it's less dependent on those payments um, than we thought. So it, the other, I guess, interesting development, particularly in the last couple of weeks where this talk of you know, a fiscal cliff happening in, in Q4 and that Q4 could actually mean another downturn in the economy again as some of these payments rolled off. Um, so obviously, the, you know, this has now introduced some flexibility into the government's um, program beyond the September cutoff date uh, and, and already, you know, talk of extending the payments for certain industries, whether there's an extension of the job seeker program as well, that's obviously in prospect. Right now, though, the government is being, you know, fairly tight um, and, and certainly indicating that this is money that now should be saved if it didn't it wasn't needed we shouldn't need to spend it um, but I think you know the economic reality um, as time goes on may mean that uh, it's going to be difficult for them to wind this back and obviously they've got that extra um, room in the budget should they need to do that. The implication for bond markets and there was a reaction to this announcement on Friday um, is obviously that you know bond market issuance is going to be lower um, than than everyone thought before this. So bonds did rally 
a little bit in Australia on Friday on the back of this news. Uh, as Stu said, it was a bit of a risk-off session on Friday anyway, uh, but this sort of added to a little bit of Aussie outperformance on the on the um, view that there's now going to be less issuance than, than previously thought. There's going to be a full review of this program in June. That was always on the cards, um, and obviously in light of this, we're probably going to be getting you know perhaps more tweaking that, than we thought initially. Um, but for bond markets. It's been a pretty low volatile period the last few weeks. And as Stu mentioned, it was a very uh, unexciting uh, week in terms of bond market moves. Um, you know, demand and supply are really the two big themes. And we've been talking about, you know, a, a tug of war between these two things in bond markets for a while. Um, Friday and for the moment now in Aussie markets, it looks like the demand side is, is winning out a little bit over the supply for the time being. <laughs> Thanks, Bev. Uh, Andrew, might bring you into the conversation and uh, go a little more global now. Um, uh, so late last week, we had the FOMC outlook updated and Chairman Powell provided his testimony. Can you give us a bit of an understanding with regards to um, the prospect for yield curve control here? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Um, I guess just to set the backdrop, as, as Bev alluded to, I think it was Bill Clinton who made that famous quote where he said if he wanted it was to be reincarnated, he'd want to come back as the bond market so he could intimidate people. It wasn't very intimidating last week in the US Treasury market, so yields traded in a five basis point range in 10-year yields, and yield curves and yield curves ended the week modestly flatter. But as you as you mentioned, there was a couple of interesting developments on the policy front last week um, in the US. So um, the US Federal Reserve was out, and in relation to their forward guidance or policy, they they said they might look to implement either a date-based guidance or some form of macro macroeconomic-based guidance. Um, and in conjunction with that, um, they did make mention of yield curve control. Um, so it looks like yield curve control may be the next weapon that in the arsenal that they employ going forward if they wish to keep um, conditions really accommodative. So it looks like yield curve control, as we've seen down under, may, may actually be um, employed in the US. And the other interesting de uh, development, I guess, last week in US Treasury markets was, as Bev mentioned earlier, the demand supply dynamics in that market. And what we saw last week, we saw a massive week of issuance in the US, including the issuance of a new 20-year bond. And what look, looks like that we'll see more of the same of that this week with continued um, big supply calendar this week. But this is in the backdrop of the US Federal Reserve also announcing that they're going to continue to taper treasury purchases. So they're tapering treasury purchases from $6 billion per day down to $5 billion per day this week. So as Bev alluded to in, 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 in her comments earlier, it looks like this week that in the US supply uh, dynamics may continue to win out in the US and we may continue to see that back end of the US yield curve come under some pressure. At the moment, it's, it's kind of death by a thousand cuts, but we'll look to see how that plays out going forward. And that yield curve uh, sort of situation played out there, which is uh, sort of very interesting for clients. So thanks for highlighting that. Paul, can we stay offshore, but maybe now switch to the European markets? And again, uh, similarly to the last uh, question I asked, we also had some minutes released by the ECB with regards to their outlook. Can you bring us up to speed there and any market in impacts that might have? Yeah, the, the major uh, takeaway from the minutes was really uh, a statement by Philip Lane, the, the Irish economist uh, at the ECB, where he mentioned about changing the tools. Um, so it wasn't just about increasing uh, QE, but also changing of the tools. So that, you know, could really throw in there 
uh, yield curve control even with the ECB as well. So I thought that was very interesting. So I think all eyes will be on the June the 4th uh, meeting there uh, of the ECB. So that's something to, to look forward to. Also, it, what was quite interesting from the, if you remember two weeks ago, we had the German Constitutional Court coming out with um, uh, a question to the ECBs around the QE program. Well, as it turns out, Friday, actually, the German Central Bank actually issued a quite a positive report on QE by the ECB and its positive gyrations across the uh, the, the European economy. So I thought that was was particularly interesting. But the, the big news was, was what Stu's already alluded to last week, which was the Franco-German uh, debt deal, as it were. It's 500 billion euros of grants, not new debt. And, and I thought what was really interesting over the weekend and uh, Sontag uh, was uh, Wolfgang Schubel actually uh, came out in support of this deal. Now, if anybody remembers, Wolfgang Schubel actually is very, very powerful. He was the finance minister in Germany. He's now the head of the lower house there. And he will play a big role in getting that deal through. And he's actually backed that deal. So I think that's really interesting um, that he has said it's not a mutualization of the old debt, but the new debt. So Europe's really using this crisis to have its Hamilton moment. Um, so essentially, Europe is using this to become further down that federalist route. And I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic. Of course, the ramifications of that are mainly played out in the periphery with cheaper funding. Italian bond spreads had a, had a very good run, uh, particularly at the start of the week. And so we're, we expect to see that continuing and of course, you know, with this US-China issues that are going on, France and Europe intends to be a player there. So that's something to bear in mind. Um, you know, France did pull their Facebook fines at the start of this year, but they will come back onto the table at the end of the year if there's no global agreement on how we're going to tax these um, these, these tech companies. So that's something to, to bear in mind of, of how that plays out in the, in the coming quarters. Yeah, very timely there, Paul. And uh, staying in that area, um, the UK, um, my understanding is that we're moving into negative territory. Is this a record low for that market? And again, on a similar theme, what do we take out of this as investors? It is. It is record low. They actually issued as well the first ever negative yielding bond last week in the UK, um, really coming off the back of uh, more noise surrounding the the lack of um, a postponement of Brexit Day, i.e. the end of the year. Negotiations have obviously been tempered. They've obviously been slowed and um, they're back at the negotiating table with, with quite a bit of animosity being thrown around at the moment. So that's, that hits sterling, it hits the bonds, obviously. Uh, so there's nothing really new there in terms of bad information, but it's, it's really this Brexit negotiation, which we expect to keep things well suppressed in the UK going forward. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Richie, we might bring you into the conversation and start to drill down on the markets. So could we uh, maybe sort of focus on the macro credit space? Um, and uh, we had our first full week of the secondary market corporate uh, credit facility. Can you bring us up to speed uh, with regards to US um, IG and high yield markets? Yeah, sure, Craig. Uh, relatively quiet night on Friday um, for credit spreads. We obviously had the holiday long weekend coming up in the, in the US and Europe as well. Uh, last week, however, was pretty constructive for, for credit spreads and it was really driven by two things. You know, firstly, primary issuance in the US and Europe 
you know, was was lower than the record levels we've seen over the sort of last two, two and a half months. Um, and this has really allowed the market to work through the sort of slight indigestion it had from the over one trillion of new issuance that we've seen in the US um, alone this year. Um, and then secondly, as you sort of touched on, um, the Fed has continued to buy credit ETFs as part of their QE purchase program. So last week um, was the first full, full week, as you said, they averaged about 300 mil per day. Um, and this really continued to support credit spreads while the market awaits the Fed starting to buy individual credit bonds. And, and this will be actually the more significant part of QE for the Fed. And Fed communication seems to be consistent with um, the buying of those individual credit bonds starting um, this week. So while the lack of issuance um, offshore or the, the less issuance offshore really drove spreads. It was actually um, some new issuance locally that saw um, that helped drive spreads tighter. So last week we saw Macquarie Bank issue a, um, a, a sub-debt deal and um, this was the first one that we've seen since the crisis um, that was a bit further down the capital structure and the risk spectrum. So up until now, we've really seen highly rated covered bonds or senior debt being issued, but Macquarie Bank issued um, 750 mil. Um, the book saw really, really strong demand. So three times oversubscribed. Um, it, it priced at um, 290 basis points, and that's a full 25 basis points tighter than the initial price talk. And really the impact with, of this was to see sub-debt secondary market spreads move tighter. Thanks, Richie. I suppose that Macquarie issue as well is good for the market and it's the domestic market with regards to uh, showing the, the liquidity uh, coming in. Uh, we might switch. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the uh, the US-China tensions this morning, Steve, but um, we've also had some domestic developments with regards to their Congress, et cetera, taking place. Can you bring us up to date on any market-driven news that's come out of these uh, these um, these meetings? Yeah, sure, Craig. Look, I, I guess there's been two big meetings on toward the end of last week. And <clears throat> the first from like the People's Consultative Committee is, is um, generally not expected to be the newsworthy one and uh, is probably a bit more political, whereas the um, People's Congress is probably more focused on economic affairs. Um, I guess the big news item actually came out of the, uh, surprisingly, from the first committee with the, the political approach to Hong Kong changing. And that's probably the biggest market moving um, news, I think, that's come out of the the two days. Because from an economic point of view, I think it was very much as we expected. I, I mentioned last week that uh, kind of the the biggest expectation from this session was that uh, Premier Li Keqiang would not have a specific growth target. And that turned out to be the case. He said, I'm not going to set a specific target for economic growth this year. Um, basically saying it's a bit too hard to predict what it's going to be. Now, in the past, how China's dealt with that is they've set a target. The economy has grown however much the economy grows and the government's made up the difference with spending. This time they're saying, look, we're not going to try and spend to hit a specific target. Our focus is changing a little bit to stability. So looking at, they call the six stabilizations, you know, stable, stability and employment, finances, and, and importantly, I think for us, foreign trade, foreign investment, as well as domestic investment and people's expectations. So there's a real, a real change in tack, I guess, to stability over growth in China. What that means though is a, a big increase in their fiscal deficit, um, which will be funded, you know, we'll see more Chinese government bond issuance offshore, maybe China in the 
sorry, onshore, maybe China in the offshore markets as well. Um, and perhaps a little bit more, as Paul touched on, of, of some federalization of debt with the central government borrowing money and, and sending it out to the local governments. Whereas in the past, it's been a lot of local governments borrowing on their own. So I think implications for supply and implications for the rest of the world and that China isn't just going to grow for growth's sake this year. It's about growing to stabilize and really shore up the foundations after what's been you know, uh, a shock to their economy as it has to the rest of the world. Awesome stuff. Thank you, Steve. Robert, we might uh, finish off with yourself. Uh, we started the conversation with regards to an update on the asset market performances. Can we drill into the equity markets and the commodity markets? What should we be aware of from last week and what we should be watching out for for the week ahead? Craig? Sorry, Craig. Um, I think one of the, I guess, since the post-reporting uh, season, we've had a number of the investment banks actually updating some of their analysis and I guess highlighting the bifurcation of performance of, the, I guess, the big five stocks, so Microsoft, Amazon, um, Apple, uh, Facebook, and um, Google. So though the performance of those five stocks against the rest of the market has been um, has been massive, and that's, I guess, a bit of a continuation from what we've seen probably since the GFC, and that's that performance of growth stocks over value stocks. Most of the analysis is typically done uh, looking at sector performance, but I think what's really interesting for our clients is looking at even when you control for the country and sector uh, expo, like country and sector groups, we've seen value being or growth performing exceptionally well, and that sort of has continued during this month where we've seen uh, value spreads at all-time highs. Thank you, everyone, for bringing us up to date globally across our financial markets, where the threat of COVID-19 is now playing out heavily across South America and the rise of the China-US tensions is beginning to capture the market's attention, yet those large US tech stocks continue to increase in size. We look forward to updating you again next Monday. Thank you for listening. Please watch out for our upcoming Global versus Local Credit podcast on the QPod channel and have a great week ahead.